wonderful. Well, I just want to do a bit of promo before we get into the scriptures today. First of all, last week I spoke on, on money and giving, and, and particularly the idolatry of money and how that works and so on and so forth. A couple of books I want to recommend to you. As I've said to you before, I don't have any original ideas. I never have had. Um, it's just what I read and stand on the shoulders of other people. Randy Alcorn, The Treasure Principle, is an excellent book. I actually read it again last week, just in preparation for the message. Um, and Randy Alcorn just does an amazing job. He's subtitled, Unlocking the Secret of Joyful Giving. If you find it hard to give joyfully, I'd really recommend buying this book rather than not giving, because I can't give it cheerfully and therefore the Lord wouldn't like it. No, let's inform our hearts on how to give cheerfully. And I think what's great about this book is he talks about giving light of eternity. And I just think there's such a wonderful mindset uh, of trying to understand what difference does giving make in this life to, to eternity. So it's a great book, so you can get that. Also, Timothy Keller, called Counterfeit Gods. This, this book, this was bordering on life-changing for me, just in the way he started to talk about how love, money and power can be very modern-day idols not only in New York, but around, around the world. And he just starts talking through those issues with such pastoral sensitivity, but also biblically founded. This is an outstanding book that I encourage you all to get. It's not just primarily about giving, to be honest. It's about how we see the world and how we interact with the world and what it's really all about. And that's $14.50. $14.50 to change your life. That's a bargain. So get that. You'll enjoy that. And also Glorious Ruins. It's the latest Hillsong album. I really like it. There's going to be a number on here that we're going to be looking to do. So if you, want to, if you like Hillsong, then, then get it. It's $22. That's a bargain. I think Hillsong themselves sell it for 23 Welcome to Sovereign Grace. So grab it, enjoy it, whack it in your CD player, listen to it. You'll really enjoy it. So get them in the bookshop today. All right, let's go ahead, please, and turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Back in May of this year, we celebrated, as a church family, Mother's Day. It was a day where we gave over to honouring the mothers in the church, and we looked at what mothering is, as biblically defined, and it gives us an opportunity to remind mothers, to encourage mothers, to cheer mothers along in the calling that God has given them in their lives. Next week, we'll be celebrating Father's Day as a church. It gives us a morning to honour fathers, to encourage them and to cheer them on in what God's called them to and the high and lofty calling that's on their lives. Well, today I'm not going to call it Singles Day, because that's weird. But today I do want to give attention to honouring you, the singles in our church, and giving attention to the high and lofty calling that's on your life. The things that God has called you to, the things that the Bible says about the single years so that we can as a church family remind you and encourage you and cheer you along in what God has called you to, whether it be for a season or whether it indeed be for your life. And so if you're single, this is, this is my attempt to care for you. I'd have to say for me genuinely, I've never preached such a hard message in my life. I gave myself the assignment because I thought it would be a good idea. And then I sat down Wednesday night, having opened the Bible, and thought, oh no, what am I going to say? How do we do this? A third of our church are single. But Lord, what would you want me to say to them? And so if you are single, this is my attempt to care for you pastorally, and to bring God's word to bear on your life. And whether I do it well or not, 
at least feel my affection up front that this is my effort to try and do it. And if you're married, I want you to know that we need to be listening into this as well. Because we need to have a biblical vision for singleness. If we're going to cheer these guys along, if we're going to encourage them and stand with them and care for them and pray for them, and just the same way that they need to understand about marriage, and that all married folks and single folks need to understand about parenting and how to honour mothers and fathers, we also need to understand how to honour singles and to applaud what the Lord is doing in their lives. So to that end, we're going to give ourselves today to a very difficult text, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, small bit of background before we read some of it together. Prior to this letter being written, Paul has in fact already received a letter from the Corinthian church. And so when he's writing this, it's not just some random thoughts. He's responding to things that they've already written to him about. So in chapter, one, chapter, seven, verse seven, chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So they've written to Paul as the founder of the church and said, Look, you know, we're going through some challenges here. How do we deal with these different things? And in this chapter, he deals with marriage, he deals with sexuality, he deals with divorce, and he deals with singleness. So verses 1 through 5, he focuses his attention on marriage and sexuality. He particularly wants married couples to know, which I'll give you the reasons for in a moment, that it is good to have sexual intimacy in marriage and something to be applauded and something to be treasured. But from verse 6 onwards, from verses 6 through 9, 25 through 28, and then 32 through 38, Paul discusses singleness. So let's read these verses together. Verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Verse 25. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. And verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. The married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, 
He who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we gather around your word today, Lord, we do lift up to you the singles that are in our local church. Father, as Jesse said earlier on, we're all your treasure. And Lord, you don't define us by marital status. You define us by the blood of Jesus. You define us as children of the King. And so, Lord, as we gather around your word, would you minister your word to them? Lord, would it not be my voice they hear, but would they hear your still voice? Lord, speak truth to lives today and change lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You know, for a number of different reasons, preaching 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as a passage is really, really challenging and, and really hard. I mean, for a start, it is difficult because it is so frequently and widely misunderstood and misapplied. You see, what Paul is writing about here has specific circumstances in mind, namely the Corinthian circumstances. And so we have to understand that. And if we don't understand that, albeit that it's tricky, then this whole passage doesn't really make sense when it comes to the single years. So in Corinth, there are Christians who are rejecting sexuality and advocating and encouraging a life of self-denial. They've been affected by Greek thought in that. There is this Greek idea that in some way the body is really not that great. And so if you want to be truly spiritual, then almost deny the body. Good food, good drink, even sexuality in marriage, oh, forget it. If you want to be truly spiritual, then just flee from all those different things. And so you've got a load of people in the Corinthian church, a church that would be similar to the size of us, they're going around the place saying, you know, I know you're married, but you guys should stop having sex. Because if you really want to be spiritual, these things aren't important. And so you've got singles thinking, oh, all right, I was kind of looking forward to that when I get married, and, uh, and they're not quite sure what to do. And you've got married couples saying, is that right? You know, because we were, I thought this was a good thing. And, and everybody's really confused. So they're writing to Paul about that. But you must understand the backdrop is that issue. A Greek thought, a heretical thought, that the body and sexuality is in some ways bad. So they're trying to convince everybody to abstain in any way, married in particular, from sexual intimacy. And most likely, you must understand, they are setting Paul up as the poster child of this. Paul is single. So they're saying, in Paul's absence, you know what? If you don't believe me, look at Paul. He's single. He understands it. Paul isn't having sex with anybody because he knows that, you know, it'd be wrong. It would, he's more spiritual than everybody else. Even if he was married, which of course he's not, but even if he was, he would no doubt be not having any sexual intimacy. He's become this poster child in his absence of a wrong thought. And so this is a tricky passage because that is taking place. And some things that he says can be very hard to understand unless you understand that backdrop. And many times when I think this is preached, that backdrop is not understood and so it's misrepresented and misapplied. I also think it's a tricky passage to speak, a challenging passage, because of the topic itself. You see, the topic of singleness is so personal to so many, isn't it? This is one of those items that, as a pastor, you walk into aware that this is, for many, not just a study or a doctrine, 
This is a daily reality. And for some, they're happy with that. They think, this is great. I love being single. But for others, there is a genuine desire to be married. And the Lord, for whatever reason, hasn't opened that up. And so this isn't just a topic or a study. This is something that you feel the pain of nearly every day of your life. And so I recognise right up front that as we come to this topic of singleness, we most likely, given the amount of people in this room, come at it from a whole range of different avenues and different places and different perspectives and different mindsets and different situations. I mean, all of us start off single, right? We all do. Everybody in the room, when we are 12, 13, 14, we are single. We all grow up single. And most of us, even that are married, will finish life single. One spouse will die first and you will be single again. But when we're young, when we're 12 or 13, we don't think of ourselves as single. If you're in this room and you're 12, 13, 14, you're probably not thinking in this moment, oh, he's talking about me. You're not thinking like this at all. You're just thinking, I'm I'm a teen. What am I meant to do? And I think even older teens can tend to think very similarly. You know, single? Well, I suppose I am, but I'm all good to go. You know, I'm just trying to do HSC. You're not really thinking about getting married at this point. But you know, five years on from your position, 10 years, 15, 20 years, maybe 30 years or 40 years, you might start to feel quite differently about being single. You might not. You might generally find a grace in it and a love for God in it and a nearness for the Lord in it. And so you may walk through the single years with great contentment. And rarely, on some occasions, but rarely, I meet those inter- the, these people. I think, praise God for that. But the majority of people find those years hard. There are challenges within that that you feel, that you walk through. There's a desire to get married, and yet it doesn't seem to be arriving. Well, my friends, with that in mind, although this is a tricky text, I thank God for it. Because it's here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that Paul, I think, gives us himself as a single, a vision for singleness. A biblical vision of the single years. A biblical vision of what singleness actually looks like. A biblical vision of the value and worth and splendor that God puts on singleness as biblically defined and a biblical vision of how God, full of grace and full of mercy, empowers those years for his glory. And so I'm pleased we're around it this morning because singleness is a challenging topic, but we need to gather around God's word and let him then speak into those topics. And he does, right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He gives us a biblical vision of singleness. And the more I've thought about it this week and spent time on it, the more I've realized that our city and our culture and our church needs a biblical vision of singleness. We need this. What does the Bible say about these things? In John chapter 10, verse 10, that we studied some time ago, Jesus himself talks about the devil. And he says, you know what, the devil, the evil one, he comes to kill, rob and destroy but I have come that you may have life and that in abundance. The premise is Satan for us as a Christian has no power over us, no dominion over us, but he can still lie to us. 
The culture around us doesn't worship Satan, but it does fall under his influence. And so there are so many lies that are being built into our culture, being built into our televisions, being built into our media, preconceived ideas that are not biblical, that are being built into our worldview. Well, that worldview seeps into Christian culture as well. So we need a biblical vision of singleness. Otherwise, all we get is the culture's vision. And I think the culture's vision so often lies to us. And so the way we're going to attack this text today, for better or worse, is we are going to hit at four lies. What are four lies that Satan says about singleness? What are four lies that we often hear in culture? What are four lies that I think we can all be affected by in different degrees? And then we're going to allow Paul to answer those lies. Paul to inform us and see how we're believing something that is just a lie. So here's the first one. Number one of four. Lie one. You're single because of you. You are single because of you. Now for some of you in the room at this moment, you're thinking, is that a lie? I thought it was true. That's my point. It's a lie. For some of you who are single, you may be looking on and think, you know what, I I think to be honest, I'm single because I'm undesirable. And most of the time that will be girls thinking that, not boys. All boys tend to think we are desirable. But some girls (laughs) do think, you know, I'm I'm not sure I'm desirable. Maybe you think, well, I'm, I'm ugly or I'm fat. And that's probably why I'm single. You know, I look around at the girls that are married and they're really pretty, but I'm not. So that's probably why I'm single. Or maybe you perceive that you're single, man or woman, because you had a relationship once upon a time that went wrong. You blew it or the situation changed and you just think, you know what, I missed the one, I missed the opportunity. If I'd married them, probably would have been all right, but it didn't seem right to marry them, and so it all, went, it all went horribly wrong, but I wasted all these years of my life, and now I've got older, and I've probably missed the boat. So I'm single because I missed it. I, I missed the opportunities. And because I was with that guy or that girl, uh, the opportunities seemed to go after that. Everybody seemed to get married, and, and I didn't. Or maybe you think that you're single because you've never been in a relationship, And you've never been in a relationship from your perspective because you're unattractive in some way. Maybe looks, but maybe not. Maybe personality or lifestyle or age. So at least in your mind, you've shelved yourself under the premise of too hard basket, I'm single because of all these things. We know what the truth of the Bible is simply this, and singles, I want you to hear this loud and clear. You're single ultimately because of God. You are single ultimately. The ultimate reason is because of him. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. Paul says it this way. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. What's he talking about? He's saying, oh, well, I'm single. (laughs) This is the context. I wish that all of you were single like me. But... Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind or one of another. So I wish, as Paul, that you were all single like me. But I'm aware you're not. 
And I'm aware you're not because God gives different gifts. One of one kind, namely singleness. One of another kind, namely marriage. I'm aware there's two different gifts going on. But his sub-point, overarching point is this. Your situation, your marital status is a gift from God. If you're married, it's a gift from God. If you're single, it's a gift from God. He is pointing us to the sovereignty of the great giver. He's the one that gives these gifts. See, folks, if you're single, I want you to understand God personally and passionately loves you. He does. He sings over you. How do I know? Well, I know because the whole Bible sings of it. In the book of Ephesians, we we read that the Apostle Paul then declares once again that before there was even time, God chose you. He didn't just know your name. He didn't just know what you were going to end up being like. He chose you. He picked you out. At the right time then, God in all his grace sent forth his son to die on a cross, to have his arms stretched out, to become accursed for you. And he did this because he loves you. In doing this, he made a way for you to be adopted into the family of God to be forgiven of all your sins, to be redeemed, to be reconciled, to know heaven is your home. But this came at great cost. This came at the cost of his son. But he's willing to do it because he loves you. He knows your name. He knows your frame. He knows how you're made. And God not only passionately and personally loves you, he passionately and personally oversees you in his power as well. Do you understand that? God doesn't just oversee you in his power once you're married. God oversees you in his power all of your life. Psalm 121, one of my favorite psalms, simply says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Then he gives the answer. My help, (laughs) my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You know, there's this wonderful scene scene in in that psalm and a wonderful theme in all of scripture that God is incredibly powerful, but he is also incredibly personal. He is powerful in his splendor. So in the book of Genesis, we see him creating all things with just a word. In the book of Exodus, we see God in all of his might, Yahweh, using Moses to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And then God then interacting with that situation to ultimately release his people from slavery. We see God in Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den. And God steps in and closes the mouth of a lion so that when they find him in the morning, he's just basically patting these things as if they're pets. That's the power of God. We see then in the Gospels, Jesus Christ as God walking the earth, healing people, rebuking demons from people, raising people, saying to guys who have never walked, okay, stand and walk. Saying to people who have never seen, you're healed. And their eyes are are opened. Saying to deaf folk who have never heard, be healed and they start to hear. And then we get all the way to Acts and all the different letters and we start to see God in his grace interacting with people, interacting with you. 
A people who are cut off from him, who are his enemies, who are uninterested in him. And yet in a moment he pursues you, he opens your heart to the gospel, you see it, your dungeon flames with light, and you go forth amazed by his grace. That is a miracle. A miracle of his grace. And it is a a sharp reminder of not only his love for you, but his power over you and his intimacy with you. God is a powerful God. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Notice the word my and where. Or my help comes from the Lord. As they sing that, the Song of Ascents, making their way up to Jerusalem, they know that upon the way they could get robbed, they could get eaten by wild animals, they could go through all sorts of things, but the song that keeps them going is, my help, my personal help, because he knows my name, comes from Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. I can trust him. He is my shade at my right hand. He watches over my coming and going. He hems me in both behind and before. He watches over my life and keeps me and always will, both now and forevermore. It is a powerful God who is personal. My help comes from the Lord. Jesus himself then says, all that the Father has given me, I lose none. Why? Well, because they're not just numbers. They're people I care about. Don't just know their names on a school register. No, I know them. In the book of Luke, chapter 12, Jesus himself says, even the hairs of your head are numbered. I love that. For some of us, that's not hard. For others of us, that's tricky. But isn't it just so intimate in the way he shares that? You know what? I even know the number of hairs on your head. My friends, all that to say then is a backdrop of his passionate and powerful oversight of you. You're single, ultimately, because of God. He gives one gift to one, another gift to another. To some, the gift of marriage, to some, the gift of singleness, whether it be for a season or for a lifetime. But make note, God is sovereign in this. You didn't just screw up with your boyfriend and end up, well, I just, it just went horribly wrong and so I missed it and so what do I do? Or you didn't just end up looking in the mirror one day and thinking, oh, I'm so fat, that's probably why I'm single. And no. Or, you know what, if only I was cleverer, I probably would have got married, but I'm not. No, God looks back at you and says, no, you're single because I've given you the gift of singleness. Whether it be for temporary or long, that's why you're single. Because God is in control. Well, that brings us then on to the second lie. Lie two, that singleness is just a holding pattern until real life begins. That singleness, albeit a gift, is just like a waiting room until we can really crack on with our lives and get the good gift when we're married. I think our culture says that a lot. I think, sadly, our Christian culture can say that a lot as well. It can be almost patronizing. As if to say, well, we'll pray that you get married because it'll be really good then. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The Bible does not paint that picture. Bible says, well, we'll pray for you. We'll pray for you in the now as well because it's good what you've got now too. It's a gift. Now, I'm aware when I say it being a gift, which I'm only saying what Paul is saying, I'm aware that you hear that singleness is a gift. That 
does not necessarily stir in everybody's hearts a whoopee moment. You know, it is one of those moments where you think, oh, it's a gift. Oh, thank you for that gift. That's really nice. And I get that. You know, you can get this sort of idea, I think, particularly in those single years of, okay, I see it's a gift, but, but why me? How did I get that gift? What did I do to deserve that gift? You said you loved me. You know, it can be that. It can be very confusing and perplexing. You know, as you know, I'm a father of three wonderful children. And next week on Father's Day, I would imagine I will be getting some gifts of some sort. And, and I look forward to that now that they're older. But when they were young, their gifts were shocking. I mean, you just never knew what you were going to get. And so they would, they would get up early in the morning and you could hear stuff happening in the kitchen. And when they're like one, three and five, you think, this could be a problem. And they would come upstairs and there would be toast that hasn't even gone through the toaster, but it's all been buttered and marmalade. I hate marmalade. But for some reason they decided I wanted it. Cornflakes, which I never eat, but there's like this sort of watery milk in there. And you think, I think it's because they've used water and milk in the cornflakes. And then there would be a cup of tea, which of course, because they couldn't use the kettle, would be cold. And so they would arrive and they would be smiling. Josh would be smiling. They'd be presenting it to me in bed. And, and then they would look at you and say, go on, Dad. And you're like, please, Lord, if there's any way to escape. Now, now, the reality is, I knew that these gifts were an expression of their love, their affection for me. But it didn't feel like that. It felt like, do I have to have this gift? And I think sometimes in singleness, it can feel like that, can't it? We don't doubt God's love. You think, but I didn't really want this gift. In fact, what we can actually think is, you know, Lord, I, I don't remember asking for this gift. Are there any other gifts? Can I have the other gift? In fact, how do I get rid of this gift? In fact, to be honest, how can I get rid of this gift so that I can get the other gift, the greater gift. I understand it's a gift, and, and thank you for it. I am in my heart, in a heart, very grateful for it. But how do I move on from this gift and get the greater gift, marriage? How can I get the real desire of my heart, this incredible and great gift of marriage? So thank you for this gift. But when can I get that gift? Well, that is exactly what Paul addresses, I think, in this passage. See, to the Apostle Paul, marriage is without doubt a great gift. In verses 28 and verses 36, he, he says twice that it is not a sin to get married. Now, please understand, they are not really Paul's words. What he's doing there is he's aware that you are saying that it might be a sin to get married. And what he's saying is, you must be joking. That's what he's really saying there. You know, it's not a sin to get married. I mean, he's a rabbi. Paul is an astute teacher. He knows full well it's not a sin to get married. He would be saying far stronger than that if it was actually his just normal words. He's repeating what they're saying and putting it back in their face and saying, of course it's not. In Genesis chapter 2, God establishes marriage as a good thing. All the way through then the Old Testament we see marriage as in some ways a picture of God and Israel. And then we get to New Testament and we see the picture of marriage as Jesus and the church. Paul himself knows and preaches that marriage is a great gift. So he tells them, verses 28 and 36, of course, of course it's not a sin to get married. Of course it's not. And in verse 38 he says, So then he who marries his betrothed does well. 
He wants to esteem marriage and say, this is a good thing. But in context, you must understand, he's also making it very clear that marriage is not, though, it is not in any way a greater gift. It's not a greater gift at all. In verse 7, that's why he makes it clear, you know, one of one kind and one of another. He's not saying, well, you know, one of one kind and one of another. He's saying, no, we're just different. People have different gifts. And then as you examine this scripture in larger form, what you realize is that Paul is promoting singleness as a great gift with a great purpose in mind. That this has been given with enthusiasm and zeal by God, not as a there, there gift, not as a sympathetic, oh, well, you know, I'll see what I can do down the track gift, but as a promoting gift, as a good gift for the glory of the Lord. Singleness is a great gift given with great purpose by God. And as Paul addresses this, I so respect him. He is in a pastoral conundrum. This is tricky for him. This is this is difficult. As I said before, the Corinthian church are most likely setting him up as the poster child of true singleness, which he is, claiming that he's single and passionately single because that's how he avoids sexual intimacy. So praise God for Paul. He's coming into that world and thinking, how how am I going to tackle this? Well, he rightly then, and wonderfully, he He eagerly upholds marriage, something he's eager to do, but he is also eager to uphold singleness. He doesn't want to then so promote marriage that singles feel left out, that somehow he himself who is single feels discredited. No, he wants them to see marriage is great, but so is singleness. There is great purpose in marriage, but so there is in singleness. And so if you want to get married to your betrothed, well, listen, you do well. But if you want to be single, as am I, you will do even better. But not because of the reason you're saying, Corinth. It has nothing to do with sexual stuff. Something other. So what does he do? Well, verse 7, let's look at it again. I wish that all were as I myself am, single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Well, as we said before, then verses 28, verse 36 through 38, he is promoting marriage as a good gift, as a good thing. If you are married, praise the Lord for that. If you want to get married, praise the Lord for that. It is a good gift. But in verse 35, he wants to help all singles realize there is divine purpose of your single years. This is what he says. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, See that in a moment. He is arguing with them, helping them see that even if you get married, it's not all going to be really, really easy. There's going to be challenges. And so I say that to you, not as a restraint, to say you can't. But I say it so that you realize, because I want to be a faithful pastor to you. And then, then he says this. But to promote good order and to secure, listen singles, to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. To Paul, singleness is not just a second-rate gift. To Paul, singleness is given by God, which is why he's saying, I wish you were all like me. Singleness is a gift given by God, whether it be for a season or a life, so that that individual can give undivided devotion to the Lord. Not that married people can't do that. They can do that. 
But married people get distracted. They get distracted with each other. If they have children, they get distracted with children. But Paul is saying, I wish you were all like me. Because I'm not distracted in those things. And if you desire those things, that's good. Praise God. But if you don't, if you have the gift of singleness, then praise God for it. Because right now you are in a season and you are on the end of a gift that allows you to have undivided devotion to the Lord. This is not a second-rate gift. This is a great gift for the glory of the Lord. Singles, I hope that encourages you. Because this lie that singleness is just a holding pattern until real life starts can paralyze your walk with the Lord. It can have you just sitting to one side thinking, well, what am I meant to be doing? I suppose when I get married, I can really crack on. Not according to Paul. According to Paul, you crack on right now for the glory of the Lord. Because you've been given a purpose to your gift. And that purpose is undivided devotion to the Lord. What a great purpose. What an incredible purpose. I wish I'd realized that in my single years. Seriously. Because I didn't. I want you to realize it. That's what those years are given for. Whether it be for a period or for a life. It's given as a gift so that you, more than the most, can give undivided devotion to the Lord. Singles, I want to ask you then, do you realize then the gravity of the great call that is on your life? So that we can hear about motherhood and think, I understand the call of God on our life in that. We can hear about fatherhood and think, well, that sounds great. Men that are going to train and lead their families, great. Singles, you've been given a call on your life to give undivided devotion to the Lord. Do you realize that? And I want to ask you this as well, and please don't misunderstand one of the, the difficulties, I think, in preaching this message is I'm aware throughout my preparation and throughout this morning that it can be so easy, if I was sitting in your position, to think, but it's all right for you. You're married. You're not experiencing what I'm experiencing. And so please don't feel anything from me other than a pastor trying to be faithful to the word. I'm not trying to say this is easy for you. I'm not. And I know, having pastored singles for many years, for some it's very hard. The desire to get married is very real, and yet it's not happening. But I nonetheless want to be faithful to Paul, who's another pastor, who's also single. So I'm going to stand on his shoulders more than mine. And let me ask you this then. If you do realize the great call that is on your life as a single, if you do realize that you have a call of God on your life to show undivided devotion to the Lord then in those years, let me ask you this. As a single then, how is your undivided devotion to the Lord going? That's the call. So how's that going? God has given you the gift of a different amount of time to those who are married with children. Not necessarily more, but a different time. How are you doing with them, with using that, seizing that, as opportunity to show the Lord undivided devotion? Folks, I want to exhort you then. I want to exhort you with all my heart as best as I can. Don't believe the lie that singleness is just a holding pattern until real life starts. Because it's not. 
You have a great call on your life now to show the Lord undivided devotion. Number three, then, the third lie. Getting married will solve all of your problems. And if I can just get married, you know, we, we should be good to go. We should be able to work it all out. But getting married will solve all the different concerns that you have in your life. Well, this particular lie, I think, is a subtle one. And I just love the way, then, that Paul so carefully pastors around this lie and, and helps this lie. I really fans into flame the truth that should attack this lie. You see, there's no doubt that marriage is a wonderful gift from the Lord. That's why he promotes it to the Corinthian church. But he also wants to make it clear in verses 32 through 34 is that marriage is not heaven. And marriage comes with its own set of challenges. Read with me, verse 32. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman, well, she is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Now, Paul is obviously not dissing marriage in this moment. Obviously not. In the whole context, he's supporting marriage. But what he is helping us see is, you know what? In that gift of singleness, in that gift of showing undivided devotion to the Lord, you have some massive advantages. And so don't just think that if I get married, everything will be great. What he's saying is, no, if you get married, which if you want to is a great thing, which he keeps reporting back to, but if you do, don't think that it's Mecca going on here. You're going to have a different set of challenges. He doesn't go on to unpack these anxieties and worldly pleasures. But speaking as a man who's been married 13 years, speaking as a pastor who's been a pastor around 13 years as well, I want to encourage you, marriage does come with anxieties and worldly pleasures. It comes through different things that you have to give yourself to. They're good things, but it's different. What type of things? Well, he doesn't say, but let me give you a clue. Conflict resolution to the person that you're sleeping next to, that's there. All the time, looking at you, and you know you're wrong, but you believe you're right. You know, it's dealing with those things. It's, it's starting to understand that just because your spouse doesn't think it's a problem to not keep their shoes in a straight line, that it's okay, you know, and you learn to have to deal with these things. You have to learn what it is to go through difficulties and disagreements, different hopes, different dreams, different aims, different ideas of how to spend money. Marriage is a great gift, but Paul wants to help us see there are anxieties and worldly things that you will have to face in that, that all married couples do. So don't go thinking that it's just going to be easy. It will be hard. And so I would that you were all like me. <laughs> that you were all single so that you could give undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, if you want to get married, as he keeps saying, well, that's great, go ahead. But don't think that that's going to be great. I want you to also realize that we have been given a gift of singles. To give undivided devotion to the Lord. Such clever pastoring. Getting married will not solve all your problems. Now, so that there not be any misunderstandings this morning, just as an aside, I, I'm aware that the, the chances of being misread and overread into this morning are of epic proportions. 
I'm not trying to answer every single intimacy of your life and how it all works. I'm not doing that. Paul's not doing that. And I'm aware that I can be so easily misread on this, misunderstood. I'm aware, more importantly, that Paul can be misread, that Paul can be overunderstood, that conclusions can be drawn from what he's saying and what he's not saying that can actually be heretical. So let's be clear, Paul is not saying here He is not saying here that singles should just sit down and be overridingly content about their marital status. He's not saying that. He is not saying that if you desire to get married, oh my gosh, this is horrendous. How can you you say that when you've been given the opportunity for undivided devotion to the Lord? He's not saying that. That's why he keeps saying, listen, singleness is a good thing, but if you desire to get married, then that's a good thing as well, and that's okay. It's not sinful to pursue that. It's a good thing. Those who get married do well, verse 38. So he's obviously not saying that as a single, I have to get a life group and somebody says, how are you going in the single years? And you go, oh great, undivided devotion to the Lord. He's not saying we have to play that game. He's saying it's okay if you desire something else. He's trying to raise the bar on singleness. But he's not trying to say, therefore you should be so content with that, I don't even want to hear you talking about marriage. That would be misreading him and overreading him. I think if he was here, he'd be saying too well to us, no, if you decide to get married, that's a great thing. Paul is likewise then not saying that singles shouldn't date or court or pursue in any way an individual with marriage in mind. They should just sit and if God somehow steamrolls into your life and provides a spouse for you, then praise God, that's a shock. But Lord, I was happy to be single. I love this gift. He's not saying that we shouldn't pursue those things. John Stott, one of my spiritual heroes, simply said, you know, one of the primary ways God guides us is common sense. I like that. I'm an English guy. It's common sense. If I want to get married, what should I do? Well, here's a thought. Put myself in positions where I might meet other singles. Sounds like a really good idea to me. Paul's not saying that's a bad thing. Paul would be here saying, well, of course. You know, that would be a good thing. Pursue people. And if you're a Christian, you love the Lord, and you want to find a Christian spouse, which is obviously what the Bible calls us to do, if you do want to get married, then you want to put yourself in positions to pursue that. Paul is likewise not saying that singles shouldn't pray for a spouse. That if we'd like to be prayed for by the church in wanting to get married, that, oh, that's frowned upon. Does that mean you're not content with the single years? He's not saying that. He's saying, of course. That's fine. If you want to get married, then praise the Lord. Let's pray for those things. Let's pray without ceasing for those things. Folks, I want to add my voice, my pastoral voice to his and say, if you have a desire in your heart to get married, then I personally would actively encourage you to do all of those things. I would actively encourage you to pursue it. Don't just wait for God to just magically do something while you sit in your office. Now, come out of your office and start to meet other singles. Now, I would guard you against pursuing and praying for the one. That is where Hollywood is interacted with Christianity. That is not biblical. That's Hollywood. This idea that there's the one out there for me and I've just got to find the one do you realize how much pressure you put on yourself looking for the one? You meet all these guys and you think, well, they're not bad, but they're probably not the one. You know, it, it's very hard to discern who is the one. Uh, what are we actually looking for? 
the Bible doesn't suggest that. And I think particularly as Reformed guys, we can think, but God's sovereign, right? Yes. And therefore, if I get married, there will be one in mind. Yes. So I should look for the one. No. No. The Bible never teaches that. That's bad logic, bad ethic. The Bible makes it clear that if you want to get married in the Lord, which is true marriage is biblically defined, then if you're a woman, you need to find a man who loves the Lord with all his heart. One that you look at and you think, you know, I could follow him. I'd love to help him. I'd love to serve him. I enjoy being with him. And if you're a man, you're looking for a woman who you think, you know what? I love this woman. She's a woman I watch her serve. I watch the way she helps people. There are things in her life that I so admire. Now, I'm not saying that, therefore, attraction doesn't matter. If that's true, then we'll have to rip out the Song of Solomon for a start. Attraction is important. But the idea and notion that we're looking for the one, I think, can be so unhelpful. You will just have over-realized expectations of what that encounter is going to be. Just get amongst singles. Just get amongst other people. And if you're a woman, look at a man and think, could I, could I imagine him leading me? Because I respect him. Well, that's a good sign. Let's start rustling leaves towards that end, ladies. And if you're a man and you think, you know, I, where, how am I going to find the one? Well, get amongst these girls and start getting to know them. I'd have to say, particularly speaking as a man, I'm not single, but if I was a man, just to, just to big you up, ladies who are singles, I think we have many, many attractive, godly, single women in our church. Loads of them. So, boys, go get them. I mean, simply. <laughs> it takes courage. It takes boldness. It's always the risk of rejection. But go get them. Because there are women that want to be married and there are guys that want to be married and that can be so busy waiting for the one. Maybe the one is here. Go get them. Start talking. If they're not in this church, that's fine as well. But put yourself in situations where you can meet those people. Pursue them. Pray for those different things. If you have a desire in your heart to get married, I would actively encourage you to pursue and pray towards that end. Not for the one, but for a spouse. But whether you do that or not, in closing, here's one final lie that I want to guard you against. That I think Paul would guard us against. And it's lie four. That as a single, you are all alone. That in effect, as a single, you have no family. I think if this isn't understood correctly, in a church like Sovereign Grace, a single existence would be painful. Because we have a number of families in this church. And so if you as a single believe the lie that you are all alone, I would only argue that that will be accentuated in this type of church. Because we're a family church. We have people getting married and people having babies. And it gets to be over-realized. But Paul never speaks into this lie directly in this passage. But in effect, he does speak into it. As a singles, I want you to know, first and foremost, that you're never alone because as a local church, we're your family. You may have blood family in Sydney. Praise the Lord for that. Honestly, I wish I did. Outside of my family that I live with, we have no family here. And that's the hardest thing about living in Sydney by a long way. 
If you're single and you have family around, praise God for that. But even if you don't, I want you to understand, as a local church, we're your family too. And this is emphasised by Paul over and over again throughout this letter. He says the word brothers. Chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you then, brothers. Chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I came to you, brothers. Chapter 3, verse 1. But I could not address you, brothers. Do you see the emphasis time and time again? Brothers, brothers, brothers. It's not because he's like some surfy guy that just calls everybody bro. Okay, that's not his point. He's trying to make a clear emphasis all the way through theological emphasis that we're family. You're family. As a local church, Corinthians, you are family, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers. Sovereign grace, so it is with us as well. We are family. You hear it all the time. I don't want it to become a catchphrase. I want it to become a reality. And I think it is a reality. But if you are single and you believe the lie that you're all alone, you will not see that reality. But it is a reality. If you're a part of this church, then you are a brother or a sister. You're family. And so for marriage in the church, I want to encourage you. Open up your homes to singles. It's so important. I think there could be just this unhelpful lie to married people and to families that singles might feel awkward if they come over for lunch because they're by themselves. I've never met a single yet that said that. Now, singles, I want you to understand as well, there could be a lie in your culture as well that if I invite a family over, they might think that's really weird. Nope, I've never met a family yet that would be like, oh, that's awkward. Um, no. They're just cultural lies that are built into church life as well, that are just inconsistent with Scripture and inconsistent with reality. So if you are married, I want to encourage you folks, open up your homes to the singles in our midst. Let them feel a part of your family. But if you're a single, I want to encourage you, open up your lives to us as well. Because we're not mind readers. And sometimes you can say to folk, how's it like being a single? And you're aware that as a couple, it can seem patronising. We're not trying to be patronising, we're just trying to ask. In the same way that you say back to us, so what is it like being a dad? I'm not thinking, well, who are you? And we're just thinking that this is conversation. This is family life. Singles, let us in your life too. You're loving being single, well, praise God for that. We want to applaud that and encourage you in that. But if you're finding it difficult, let us in. Let us care for you. Let us encourage you. Let us pray with you. Let us envelop you into our families. You are never alone because as a local church, we are family. And you're never alone. Secondly, because you're a child of the King. You're a child of God. Your identity is not in your marital status. Your identity is in Christ. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1, which is where I want us to finish. Right at the start of the book, Paul in verses 4 through 9 writes as follows. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, listen, Who will sustain you to the end? 
guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were all called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He wants to help them see. Corinthian church, as I start to talk to you about numerous issues, there is one thing we have in common. Christ Jesus, one whom whoever we are, holds us and keeps us, who is faithful to the end and who will sustain you to the end. He will never leave you, never forsake you. He will hem you in both behind and before. Corinthian church and now Sovereign Grace Church, we are never alone. We never will be alone. This idea of being, being a single means you're alone. I submit to you, married people can feel exactly the same thing. It is a lie of the enemy that does not come with marital status. It is a lie of the enemy that seeks to pull us away from the church and seeks to pull us away from the Lord. We must stand against that lie. If you're single, I think you are particularly vulnerable. You need to stand against the lie that you're alone. You're never alone. You have a church which is family. More importantly, you have a faithful king who will always sustain you who will never leave you, never forsake you. Now at Christchurch, there was this beautiful ladies called Hetty and Iwin. I've mentioned before, there. Hetty actually died last year. She's early 90s. Iwin is in her late 80s. And never got married. And I remember, I used to go around seeing them about once a month and just spend time with them because they just, so, they just loved the Lord so much. It was infectious. And they wanted me to come over, so I'd go over and I'd have a cup of tea with them and a chat with them. And, and as I got to know them over the years, we became very, very close. And I remember saying to Hetty once, she must have been about 89 by the time I asked, Hetty, why did you never get married? Did you want to get married? Did you want to stay single? And she said with eyes bright, which is always Hetty, oh, I wanted to get married. But I never met a man that was suitable. And I said, oh, really? And then she said, but it meant I could be the Lord's. She lived it. And so does her sister. You would not interact with these elderly sisters and find a disappointment in their eyes. Or that sense of, oh, we're just on the shelf while the other stuff goes on. You would interact with sisters, one day you will in the heavenly realms, who love Jesus with all their heart. I've never been more encouraged by anybody more than Hetty and Irwin. I've never been fed by anybody more than Hetty and Iwin. I've never been cared for more than Hetty and Iwin. I remember when Emma and I had Josh. We were first-time parents, and Hetty, Hetty and Iwin said, well, well, come on over and spend some time with us. And we got there, and they said, oh, your parents now, you look very tired. We'll look after your kids. They're 80s. We'll look after your kids. Go and have a little lie down on the chair. And she pulled a little rug over us, and Emma and I just sitting there. And our whole premise, but our whole premise is, we just want to care for you. We love you. My friends, whether God has called you to be a single for a season or a lifetime, would you be undivided in your devotion to the Lord? Sold out for him, realizing you have a grand call on your life. It is not second rate until you get married. It is both first rate before the Lord. So seize the day in the right sense. Don't believe the lies of the enemies, but believe the truth of Scripture. And with this truth in your single years, truly set you free. Let's stand together, my friends. And if the band could come back out, that'd be good.